From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Friday, March 23rd. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. No stop to the violence in Syria despite an international push for negotiations. Also today, the competition for religious souls in Mexico as Pope Benedict begins his visit there. And later, concerns over the future in Afghanistan. It is heartbreaking to hear and see how much Americans now see Afghans all in this um They're all terrorists. They've been killing each other and at war for centuries. Let's leave them behind. Let's get out and and let Afghans kill each other. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, presenting Murdoch's Scandal. The powerful media mogul's reputation, future, and dynasty are in peril, resulting from business practices in his media empire. Tuesday, March 27th at 10, 9 Central, on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There are reports of widespread protests and fighting in Syria today, this despite ongoing diplomatic efforts to convince the Syrian government and its opponents to stop the violence. On Wednesday, the United Nations Security Council issued a call for both sides to seek a negotiated solution. That's had little effect on the ground, though. The conflict in Syria is, for some, reminiscent of other instances when the international community failed to bring an end to violence. Reporter Matthew Brunwasser has more on that from Hatay in Turkey. The conflict in Syria has for months now had all the signs of a mismatched contest. Mustafa Haj Yusuf is a fighter from the rebel Free Syrian Army. He just arrived in a Turkish refugee camp on Saturday. His unit was sleeping in the town of Janudia in Idlib province when someone called and said the military was on the way. But we had no idea how big it would be. When the military came, we were armed only with light arms, and then they started shelling the town with tanks and mortars. We couldn't put up any resistance and had to run away into the mountains. Haj Yusuf says the rebels can't really put up a fight anywhere in Syria. The regime has rockets, tanks, everything. What do we have? We have nothing. Yes, yes, we have some of the FSA left. They haven't all been killed. But they control only 10% of Syrian territory, and we're afraid to fight back. We don't have the organization or the weapons. If someone gets shot, he will die because no one can treat him. He has only God's mercy. For observers of modern military conflicts, the situation in Syria is disturbingly familiar. Government pursues its national idea. Civilians die by the thousands. Diplomats demand action. Nothing happens. It appears to me, from what I can read and see about Syria, that the only group of people who have actually learned from Bosnia are those doing the killing. Emir Suljagic was detained in the Potochari battery factory in the eastern Bosnian town of Srebrenica in July of 1995. He's one of the few men who lived to tell about it. At Srebrenica alone, about 8,000 were killed in Europe's biggest massacre since World War II. The UN estimates that about the same number have been killed in the year-long conflict between the Syrian regime and anti-regime demonstrators and fighters. If we see how they're actually... 
apply this violence in a very organized manner by cutting off population centers, indiscriminately shunning them, then overwhelming them by force, by destroying the evidence of the crimes that they've perpetrated. You see Bosnia. Until this week's agreement, the UN Security Council had been paralyzed by Russia and China, which used their veto twice to block action. Ole Solvang is a researcher with Human Rights Watch. The evidence on the ground that we're seeing is that the Syrian authorities interpreted this as a green light to go ahead and to stamp out the opposition, to stamp out these anti-government demonstrations once and for all, and that they had a short opportunity to do so, and it would be tolerated that they were using force to do so. But it's still unclear whether the UN plan brokered by envoy Kofi Annan will have any impact. Solvang says the UN's Human Rights Council in Geneva and the General Assembly in New York have already turned up international political pressure and that economic sanctions are having an impact. There have also been some changes since Rebrenica. The Responsibility to Protect, a resolution passed by the UN General Assembly in 2005, requires states to stop mass atrocities, and it allows the international community to step in if a state doesn't. But Suligic is still afraid that the world won't take serious action unless there's another Srebrenica-scale disaster. The price for getting involved in Bosnia was Srebrenica. Is that another price that, we're, that the Syrians are going to have to pay? The Assad government has yet to respond to the Security Council plan. Protesters and fighters have long been saying that the violence used by the government against its people precludes talks. They insist that Assad give up power. However the diplomats end up stopping the bloodshed, it won't happen fast enough for Syria's civilians. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Hatay, Turkey. One uprising the international community actively supported was in Libya. Much has changed there since the toppling of the dictator Muammar Gaddafi. But the new Libya is still a work in progress. Libyan-born poet Khaled Matawa is experiencing that firsthand. Matawa is just back in the U.S. from Tripoli. He's helping to organize an international poetry festival there to be held next month. Matawa is also trying to help develop an independent arts scene in Libya. But he says some of the old ways there are still in place. It's the dependency that hasn't ended. Some artists have been at this for 20, 30, 40 years where they receive salaries from the government. They perform when they're called upon to do this and uh, they haven't changed. That's the mindset they've been raised with. But there are many others that are going off and doing different things. I mean, the songs that came out from the the young people are all self-produced on their own without a penny from the government involved. And that's where the future is. The, the, The government, I think, should not try to do culture. The government should let culture happen. So what uh, what position did that leave you in then, as you're trying to kindle some kind of regeneration of artistry in Libya? Well, uh, to be very patient and very quiet and let the wiser friends <laughs> speak. The voice <laughs> of experience would... <laughs> you have there. That's very yeah, wise. Would, yeah, to have wise friends who would who would get things done. I'm working with uh, on the festival with uh, a poet and, you know, he's lived in Libya most of his life and he knows how to be patient and to be witty and to try to get things done. So that poetry festival happens next month. What other culture is there right now in Libya? 
I think the, the next step is for the artist, I think, to exercise the freedom he'd always wanted. I mean, what some artists have done post-revolution is to create paintings and plays and so on that support the revolution and show the artist really glad that the revolution had happened. I find that to be quite boring. I think the next step would be for artists to begin to express things that are beyond the political moment and to express you know, either themselves, the issues that are at the core of their being, or the issues that are at the core of our culture, the Libyan culture, Arab culture. The problems that led to Gaddafi leading us for 42 years have not gone away. And for the artist to celebrate the revolution as if it's the end of, of all things is really to lie, because we didn't get to be a population dominated by one man for so long, and for him to be gone, is, you know, that, that wouldn't, that's not the only thing that we need done. You know, the culture needs rehabilitation. It needs to really get democratized in a deep way. When you go back to Libya, do you feel any kind of resentment because you've been gone for a long time? No, I, I feel, uh, in fact, a great appreciation for the people who uh, suffered through the regime and created uh, openings. They managed to have cultural activities not be stolen and claimed by the regime. Uh, those are the real heroes, and, and I have no... Uh, Excuse me. Take your time. I have, uh, I have nothing but the uh, deepest gratitude and appreciation for what they've done. There are two heroes, those people who managed to uh, create a sphere for independence. Their voice, through culture, not politics, was that clean slate that they maintained for themselves. People knew that if you could speak about art and culture, you really do provide an open space for freedom in Libya. And they did it year after year during Qaddafi's time. They talk about poetry. They talk about the nation's history. They provided an alternate vision of the country in subtle ways that as soon as people in Benghazi realized that this regime could actually fall or that they decided to fall for it. It was that imaginative space of possibility that these writers have created that people went to. And I have nothing but the purest gratitude and thanks for them. Poet Khaled Matawa, who just returned yesterday from the Libyan capital, Tripoli. Thanks. Thank you very much. Social media and the Internet have played a big role in the uprisings of the Arab Spring. Now one outspoken Twitter activist is trying to shake things up in Saudi Arabia. This activist goes by the Twitter handle Mujtahed, and he's out to expose corruption there. Saudi authorities aren't too pleased, but more than 200,000 Twitter followers are intrigued. Nobody knows who's writing the tweets, or even if it's a man or a woman. But that's not the point, says Madawi al-Rashid. She's a professor of anthropology and religion at King's College London. Anonymity obviously allows Mujtahid to explore areas that are never discussed in the Saudi public sphere, such as in the local press. And it seems to me that he has an insider's knowledge or some kind of leaks that allow him to discuss cases of corruption of the ruling family, which is a taboo in Saudi Arabia. Mujtahid has become the gutter press of Saudi Arabia, I the gutter, think. The gutter press of Saudi Arabia, 140 characters with each message. But how do you yourself even evaluate whether or not he's telling the truth? Maybe he's a really good storyteller. 
Yes, absolutely. Sometimes the corruption cases are realistic, and I must say that they are convincing. People know about them in Saudi Arabia. For example, you know, groups of people who uh, object to the fact that a part of their village is confiscated for a compound to be built for this prince or that prince, so they can actually see these kind of corrupt practices. And Mujtahid provides the context and the background, and therefore it is likely that he or she has an insider knowledge. Obviously, we cannot say that they are accurate 100 percent, but it is a phenomenon. Now, is there censorship of, for instance, in terms of social media, of tweets? Why is this person, man or woman, allowed to do what he or she does in terms of of blowing the whistle on the government? So far, uh, Twitter has escaped censorship, but I think a lot of Saudis were extremely worried when last month it became general knowledge that uh, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, who is a very wealthy businessman, bought a $300 million uh, worth of shares in Twitter. And it is very interesting uh, how Saudi participants in Twitter perceived that move. They were very, very worried about censorship. And they called on Twitter to boycott Twitter for 24 hours uh, just to make a symbolic statement that they really do object to the Saudi prince owning shares in Twitter and also the announcement by Twitter that they may be sensitive to local context in the sense that they would allow the government sensitivities in some parts of the world to block certain domains or certain names. So is the government responding in kind? Is it engaging in retaliatory tweeting? Well, of course. Uh, One thing about uh, this kind of new media is that it is a double-edged sword. Uh, Saudis themselves are very active. I myself have an account on Twitter, and I do tweet. But at the same time, all of us realize that the Saudi government is one of the wealthiest uh, states in the region, and it can buy Western expertise to help it censor certain sites. And they have their own agents on Twitter who would propagate ideas and propaganda basically. Overall, what would you say the impact Mujtahid is having? A person like Mujtahid is just simply one voice among many others. Mujtahid is more sensational, obviously, because he names the princes and he names their intrigues and talks about their corruption. There will be other Mujtahids, there is no doubt. Dr. Madawi Al-Rashid, whose Twitter handle is at Madawi Doctor, M-A-D-A-W-I Doctor. Thanks very much. Thank you. Japan looks for an energy source it can trust. Coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today, Pope Benedict XVI begins his visit to Mexico. On the plane ride over, the pontiff called the country's rampant drug-related violence a destructive evil against humanity. Pope Benedict will be spending the weekend in one of Mexico's most conservative and deeply Catholic states, Guanajuato. But elsewhere in Mexico, the Catholic Church is battling to hold on to its faithful. Monica Campbell reports. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Gloria Cristo! 
That's the sound of competition in Mexico, a battle cry, if you will. And it's not among drug cartels, but religious groups between Catholics and mostly evangelicals. And in this tiny town of Zongazotla, tucked deep in Mexico's misty central highlands, the Catholics are losing big. Each Sunday morning, everyone from young men to grandmothers wearing pastel wool shawls fill evangelical churches. It's a spiritual flip moving throughout Mexico. And there's no better place to see the religious contest than Zongazotla. As you make your way up the winding road to town, the colonial Catholic Church still dominates the landscape, but it's the only Catholic Church here. There are more than 12 others, Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Baptists. Evangelical preacher Miguel Ponce says that before the evangelicals arrived... All of our ancestors lived in disgrace, with alcohol, with witchcraft. People never prospered. The people were drunks. They were satanic. There were a lot of satanic people. My grandfather was a witch doctor. We lived under a curse. When evangelicals arrived, people started to prosper. American Southern Baptist missionaries kicked off the town's conversions in the 1950s. It then became a Mexican-led movement, and the number of converts increased as stories of drastic life changes spread, like that of Juvencio Domingo, a wiry 74-year-old coffee farmer who turned to religion when he was in his 30s and lost in an alcoholic haze. My sons and daughters didn't eat well, and I drank alcohol. I was bad in the head. That's not good, right? Domingo says the Catholic Church failed him. They don't advise you well. The priest never tells you, stop drinking, that's wrong. An evangelical devotee took Domingo under his wing and said, You're young. Take care of yourself. Follow God's word. The evangelical religion is better because they explain things well, that life is worth something. And if you don't take care of your life, whose fault is it? Ours. Little surprise that evangelicals boast how they've transformed lives here. Whatever the case, it does feel different than your average Mexican town. It's clean living, mostly. Hardly any drinking or the typical town square cantinas. Barely any smoking or swearing. Today, evangelicals outnumber Catholics in the town. And it's places like this, along with more mega evangelical churches in Mexican cities, that test Catholic dominance. Sure, Mexico is still the world's second largest Catholic country, at least in raw numbers. But affiliation has dropped steadily by nearly 20 percent since the 1950s, according to census figures. Elio Masferrer, an anthropologist and religious expert in Mexico City, explains that in Zongazotla and other rural villages like it in Mexico, evangelicals also appeal on the economic front. It's expensive to be Catholic. There are the elaborate baptisms and church weddings that can wipe out a family's savings. You have to understand that converting also makes economic sense. Back in Zongazotla, Talk to Lazaro Salgado, the Catholic priest here, and he'll tell you exactly what the church needs to do to keep its flock in Mexico. Break the top-down Catholic hierarchy. I think that our work is about being present, spending less time in the office, sitting, and not feeling somewhat superior. If not, he says, Who will people go to? 
the church that embraces them, advises them. Like other Catholic priests facing tough competition, Father Salgado livens up his mass with more singing and preaching in the local indigenous Totonaco language, a technique evangelicals mastered long ago. But more than anything, Salgado is simply overstretched. He doesn't live in Zonkazotla. It's just one of nine villages he rushes through on Sundays. Evangelical preachers outnumber him. Surveys have found an average of one Catholic priest for every 6,000 Catholics in Mexico, compared to one evangelical pastor for every 200 followers. In Zonkazotla, all of the evangelical pastors live in town, have families here, and offer services throughout the week. In a makeshift cinderblock Pentecostal church, families with Bibles in hand sing while a small boy plays guitar. In the pews is Jose Vasquez. He's Catholic, but his wife is evangelical, and he likes to support her faith, too. After the service, Vasquez talks about religious tolerance here. We respect our ideology. She has her religion and I accompany her. It's good because we don't fight about it at all. Vasquez just moved back home after years as a soldier in the Mexican army fighting drug cartels. He's impressed by the town's peaceful vibe and its focus on embracing a new form of worship and keeping coffee crops striving rather than, say, getting into the drug game. Everyone works. Everyone, everyone. Even the school kids go and work the coffee fields. Everyone working together in a group. So the young couple is now debating whether to have their two small girls go Pentecostal or Catholic. Vasquez seems to lean toward his wife's evangelical church. I like the way of thinking at her church more because it's a change in mentality. It was once unheard of in Mexico to consider not being Catholic. But here in Zongazotla, where different faiths are gaining ground, spiritual shifts are possible and underway. And while some members of the Catholic Church stress that change is needed to compete with the evangelical presence, it's unclear whether Catholicism's century-old traditions and hierarchies will be flexible enough to reverse its losses here. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Mexico. On our website today, we'll take you to that Mexican village where the denominations are competing for religious souls. The villagers speak for themselves. You can hear and see them at theworld.org. Lots of great stuff there today. Again, it's theworld.org. Southwest Germany is our destination for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the largest city in the state of Hesse. The city is on the Main River. It's known as Germany's financial hub. In fact, some refer to its business district as Manhattan. The city has other attractions. For instance, the steeple on St. Bartholomew's Cathedral soars some 300 feet high in the sky. Today, though, we're looking at the city's financial temples, in particular the European Central Bank. Can you name Germany's financial capital? We're back with the answer and a performance later in the program. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, an Afghan woman remembers photojournalist Paula Lerner. She says Lerner's work captured a different Afghanistan from the one many Americans imagine. We're not terrorists. We're simple people trying to make bread and have a life on a day-to-day basis to just simply live and not be in the chaos that we currently are. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. President Barack Obama travels to South Korea this weekend. He's going to be attending the Nuclear Security Summit in Seoul next week. More than 50 world leaders will be there. The summit's already, though, being overshadowed by the latest provocative statement from North Korea. It said that any criticism at the summit of its nuclear weapons program would be considered a declaration of war. The world's Asia correspondent, Mary Kay Maxted, says that despite that warning, Pyongyang's nuclear ambitions will be on the minds of summit participants. Those who are gathered in Seoul are obviously thinking about potential nuclear threats around the world, and North Korea's nuclear program is one of those, particularly since there's now a new young leader in North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And he, at this point, is trying to consolidate his power. He's trying to gain some street cred in North Korea. And a big date for him is next month, April 15th, the 100th anniversary of the birth of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. There's going to be a big parade. Um, There are all kinds of things planned at that time, including, it has just recently been announced, the intention to launch a satellite sometime between April 12th and 16th, which has made the U.S. and others in the region very unhappy. What's the threat that they see in the launching of a satellite? Well, to launch a satellite, you have to use a long-range missile. North Korea has tried to do this twice before since 1998, and they failed each time. The way the U.S. and South Korea and Japan have seen these attempts is that it's really an effort by North Korea to test its long-range missiles that in the future could be used to launch nuclear weapons. And is there any knowledge right now of North Korea's plans in terms of nuclear weaponry because it had this voluntary suspension of missile testing not that long ago, considered kind of the first test of this new Kim Jong-un regime? Now it seems to be going back on that, but how is the administration reading this? Right. And this is in the fine tradition of negotiating in North Korea for low these past 10, 12, 15 years. Um, Basically, in late February, the North Koreans agreed to suspend nuclear tests, long-range missile launches and uranium enrichment in exchange for getting food aid. Now, you know, barely four weeks later, the North Koreans are saying, yeah, actually, we'd like the food aid, but we're still going to try to launch a satellite. And it's sort of almost a, you know, we dare you to go back on your deal. It's both brinksmanship, North Korea trying to see what it can get away with and what it can get in the process of negotiating, and also, again, Kim Jong-un trying to consolidate his position to show he can play brinksmanship as well as his dad could. You know, a lot of the action at these summits happens in informal side meetings, not on center stage. President Obama is going to be meeting with China's president, Hu Jintao what is likely on their agenda. Right. So they're going to be meeting on Monday. And of course, President Obama will be saying, you know, look, we'd like you to do whatever you can to try to get North Korea to make good on the promises that it's already made to suspend nuclear tests and long-range missile launches and uranium enrichment. We'd also like to go back to talks to try to get it to end its nuclear weapons program. 
Hu Jintao will listen politely and will say, yes, we'll do whatever we can. But Hu Jintao has a lot on his mind right now. China has had a very wild week in terms of rumors that have been flying around on the Chinese internet related to leadership infighting. Also, there's an election coming up this weekend in Hong Kong for chief executive that the Chinese leadership is paying very close attention to. So Hu Jintao will try to play the role of statesman when he is in Seoul, but it's not at the top of his list of priorities at the moment. The world's Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. In Japan, government officials are scheduled to meet soon to chart their next steps in another crisis. That is Japan's big energy shortage. The government is considering restarting two nuclear power plants that were shut down after the Fukushima disaster a year ago. The Japanese public's trust of nuclear power was seriously eroded by the meltdowns after the tsunami. And the government has responded by promising a shift toward renewable energy. But as Sam Eaton reports, that shift has barely started. Even if you've never been to Tokyo, you've probably seen these iconic boulevards of neon. They light up the city's famous Shinjuku and Genza districts. In the days after last year's nuclear crisis, though, these boulevards largely went dark. They lost their supply of electricity from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant as a triple meltdown there set off a nationwide power crisis. A year later, Tokyo's lights are back on, but the way many Japanese think about the electricity that runs them may have changed for good. Before the accident, uh, we don't think about our energy sources. Hirano Matsubara is with Tokyo's Institute for Sustainable Energy Policies. So uh, we can use energy very easily, (laughs) just switch on. (laughs) But uh, after the accident, we start to think about the source of the energy. The Fukushima disaster made many Japanese deeply skeptical of nuclear power. Japan's 54 reactors used to generate about 30 percent of the electricity here. But safety concerns have shut down all but two, creating a huge gap in Japan's power supply. Matsubara says that shortage has been filled through a combination of conservation and firing up old conventional plants that burn imported coal, oil and natural gas. But he says for the long haul, there's only one viable option renewable energy. Because uh, we don't have uh, no fossil fuels, and also uh, nuclear power is a very high risk. So renewable energy is a final solution. The question is how to ramp up renewables fast in a country that until last year had staked most of its energy future on nuclear power. Today, renewable sources only account for about 2% of Japan's electricity. Matsubara says the country has enough wind, hydro, solar, and geothermal resources to meet all of the country's energy needs by mid-century. But that doesn't help in the short term. Japan is facing potential blackouts this summer. It's a big challenge, but also a big opportunity, says Rikyo University energy policy expert Andrew Duet. The greater the challenge, the more painful the conditions that you're confronting, the stronger are your incentives to innovate as rapidly as possible. Incentives to make a quick transition are already materializing. After Fukushima, the Japanese government pledged to get 20 percent of the country's electricity from renewable sources by 2020. And it approved new subsidies to encourage private investment in green energy. One Japanese telecommunications giant is already responding with plans to build more than 14 megawatts of solar electric capacity. And then there's the opportunity created by the need to rebuild hundreds of communities hit by last year's earthquake and tsunami. 
In places like Kamaishi, renewable energy is at the forefront of reconstruction plans. Kamaishi official Takahiro Sasa says biomass from thinning the area's forests could meet nearly a quarter of the city's energy needs. Add to that solar panels on every new building, the potential for tidal power, and a major expansion of the town's existing wind farm. And Sasa says Kamaishi could become a lot less dependent on its big nuclear utility. Elsewhere in the disaster zone, there are plans for four new biomass plants to burn roughly five million tons of wood debris from the tsunami. But these won't be online for at least two years, and the rest of the promised renewable energy economy will take even longer. Which is why Tokyo economist Martin Schultz with the Fujitsu Research Institute says Japan also needs to learn to use less energy. Japan's future over the next years will most likely depend on how energy efficient, how much Japan will be able to become more productive with the energy sources it already has. Schultz says Japan has tremendous room for quick gains in energy efficiency, especially in housing and industry. But he says doing this would require a major shift in political culture. This is because Japan developed so fast uh, during its industrialization. All the mindset is just adding new supplies. And so far, he says that mindset still hasn't changed much. Despite all the talk about renewables and efficiency here, Schultz says nearly all of the investments in new energy projects since Fukushima have been in conventional generation. And then there's the question of Japan's nuclear industry itself. It's an industry that includes both companies that operate nuclear plants and companies that design and build them. And Rikyo University's Andrew DeWitt says it has no intention of giving up its huge share of the Japanese market. You're talking serious money. Now, Japan has the world's third largest electricity market. That's 17 trillion yen. Which translates to about $200 billion. The tension was on display recently when the mayors of three major cities, Kyoto, Osaka, and Kobe, called on their utility to provide a specific timetable for phasing out nuclear power. The move came after the utility defended nuclear energy and only provided general assurances that it would pursue renewables. The government has been sending similarly mixed signals, this despite what seems to be a strong anti-nuclear sentiment. A poll conducted this month found that 80% of Japanese want to phase out nuclear power. Ultimately, DeWitt says the momentum is building, and a new energy economy is all but inevitable here. Over the long haul, that uh, structure of vested interests, it's in eclipse. The question is, you know, how quickly does that process happen? Like so much of Japan's recovery over the last year, change has been slow to come. But there are signs that the country is moving in a new direction. Just look at Tokyo's giant electric billboards. When they came back on after last spring's disasters, many of them had had their neon bulbs replaced with energy-saving LEDs. For The World, I'm Sam Eaton, Tokyo. Energy is only one of the many problems Japan's facing. You can hear Sam Eaton's reports on the aftermath of the tsunami and nuclear crisis at theworld.org. Paula Lerner was a photojournalist who took extraordinary images of women in Afghanistan, women doing ordinary things, cooking, putting on makeup, laughing. We featured some of the photos. We've got them at theworld.org. Paula Lerner died of breast cancer earlier this month. She was a friend of this program and a good friend of mine. Rangina Hamadi knew her, too. Rangina's father, who was assassinated last July, was the mayor of Kandahar in Afghanistan. Kandahar was a place that Paula visited several times. Rangina and Paula braved the threat of kidnappings and assault to go to the homes of Afghan women to photograph them. One of Rangina's favorites, a photo Paula took of women baking bread in a room only about three yards square. 
if I can paint a picture with words right, basically it's a three-sided mud wall with a roof on top, but that one side is open to the courtyard. And uh, the women use that little space to bake their bread on this big round metal sheet that's covered with mud and you know it's quite a process to to make bread or bake bread in in Kandahar and so Paula wanted to take photographs but because she was limited by just having this one opening she just jumps inside the little one and a half meter square area which is all covered with the black suit of the fire because there's, this is the same place that they use every day she just kind of climbs on the walls of the three other locations and she's taking photographs from the top down so the young woman is squatting on the floor making the bread on the floor and paula's climbing on the walls inside this little space and taking photographs and there's fire on one corner and there's this woman who's baking bread but she's also laughing as to what the heck is Paula doing her mother and her sisters uh, ran in and they're standing beside me laughing at what is she doing Paula was not paying attention to any of us because she was enjoying taking these photographs and when then she was done we had to clean her of the suit that she had touched on her arms and on her legs and she's like well I do a lot of mountain climbing. And so climbing on these walls in this little tiny place was not a problem. Out of that, some amazing photographs have come about. And I will always, always remember that incident. And it sounds like it was a a wonderful few moments when it happened. What's the larger meaning, though, of, of our being able now to see images like that one? I think especially today in the midst of the political chaos between Afghanistan and America, It is heartbreaking to hear and see how much Americans now see Afghans all in this, um, they're all terrorists, they've been killing each other and at war for centuries, let's leave them behind, let's get out and, and let Afghans kill each other. I believe that the photographs of Paula showed the human side of what people really are like in Afghanistan on a day to day basis. And, and I hope that these pictures will help to educate Americans that, sure, we've been used and abused, but, you know, in a way, we're still living in in the old ages. We're not terrorists. We're simple people trying to make bread and have a life on a day-to-day basis to just simply live and not be in the chaos that we currently are. You told a wonderful story in a eulogy that was read at Paula's funeral uh, Mm -hmm. just two weeks ago. And it had to do with her saying goodbye and some of the women she had met in Kandahar saying goodbye to her. Can you share that again? Yes. Um, I hope I'm not going to cry about this, but um, the last day before Paula was to leave, the women decided to throw her a singing party and they danced and they played the uh, traditional drums, round drums. Actually, the, the day before, I told her that this was going to happen. So then she's like, well, I'm, I know how to sing as well. And if I only had a guitar, I would sing a song to them. So my husband and his friend actually go on this adventure, or not an adventure, but we don't have a guitar. And we don't know many people in Kandahar who have a guitar. So they go asking their friends, and finally they found a guitar for Paula. So when the ladies were done... Paula started singing a song, and I, I cannot remember the name, but I know it was something about women. In Hebrew, actually, it was not even in English. And I look around, and some of the women just had tears coming down their face. And I see, and I see more than one, more than two. There was a moment of silence, and nobody 
nobody said anything. And language didn't matter, your culture and your, your faith even didn't matter. And just knowing that someone is capable of doing that gives me hope. And I'm so proud to say that I had a friend named Paula Lerner who chose to look beyond the differences and connect with the people that were so different, so, you know, so, so strange, yet she connected in a way that I have not seen anyone connect in the nine years of time that I spent in Kandahar. Rangina, thank you. Thank you very much. Rangina Hamadi was a friend of Paula Lerner. The week that Paula died, a book of her photography called Afghan Stories was published. You can find a link and a slideshow of her work at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Back now to our GeoQuiz today. We're looking for a major city in southwest Germany. The answer, Frankfurt. It's Germany's financial capital and the seat of the European Central Bank. These days, Germans are not too happy about having to bail out their Eurozone neighbor, Greece. Reporter Caitlin Carroll recently met up with members of a German arts collective who want to give a Greek perspective on Europe's debt crisis. It's early evening outside the European Central Bank in Frankfurt. Tall bank towers surround a small courtyard where Occupy protesters have camped out for the past few months. Around 50 people stand warming their hands at fires and trash cans. A small video screen shows images of protests. Then a guy gets up to explain the impact of the austerity measures in Greece. Das Memorandum, das zweite Memorandum, wie es hier immer heißt, Memorandum of Economic and Financial Policies. Ted Geyer is a member of Schwabengrad Ballet. It's an activist arts group based in Hamburg that has staged street performances on gentrification and globalization. Now their focus is Greece. The most necessary thing, I think, is to broadcast this kind of alternative view of what is happening in Greece. The alternative view is that average Greeks are not to blame for the current crisis. Geyer says this contradicts what he often hears in the German media, that Greeks wouldn't be in this situation if they just worked harder. The Schwabengrad Ballet wanted to portray a broader perspective, so they decided to go to Greece. We spoke with neighborhood activists, we spoke with uh, unionists, filmmakers, policemen. They wanted to hear the Greek people's story, but Geyer says they often found themselves instead being quizzed by Greeks about Germany's approach to the debt crisis. Always. It didn't stop. Every taxi driver, you have this kind of conversation. Now that the group is back in Germany, the conversation doesn't seem much more harmonious. The music outside the European Central Bank is a mix of protest sounds recorded in Greece. The Schwabengrad members wear signs saying things like poverty made in Germany and hands off people's property in Greece. Some people in suits stand on the steps of the bank. They look puzzled. Ross Williams, who's British, is heading home after work. But it's a lot of noise. I don't know. It was yeah, seemed crazy. And does this make him think about Greece differently? No, I think they've been bailed out a lot of times now. I think people need to sort themselves out. And, but all this is just bad. Others took a more positive view. Elizabeth Hahn came specifically to see the show. She likes that the group connected with Greek activists. I think it was very good that some engaged, critical thinking person went to Athens to participate in what was going on there as Germans. 
but Han thinks the group could have made their performance more accessible to a broader audience. If I look around at the people participating here, I think, okay, they're interested, but it's like the usual left thinkers. Ted Geyer says he thinks this performance does more than preach to the converted. In this case, uh, there are not so many converted anyway, because (laughs) on the left, people are not so interested in economics in general often. Geyer says solving the euro crisis is complicated, of course. But he wants more activists to become educated about the topic. So even if the Schwabengrad Bellet's performance isn't heard by those inside the ECB, he hopes it will at least educate those camped out front. For The World, I'm Caitlin Carroll in Frankfurt. I'm under control of a mighty force Keeps slipping me through imaginary doors I'm under control of a mighty force Somebody get me Finally today, a preview of this weekend's presidential election runoff in Senegal. 85-year-old incumbent Abdoulaye Wad faces his former prime minister, a man named Macky Sall. The first round of voting was preceded by violence and protests over Wad's decision to run again. Even so, Senegal's elections stand out in Africa, where many countries have experienced military coups. Just look next door to Mali, where a military coup unseated the president this week. The world's Marco Werman was in the Senegalese capital, Dakar, for the first round of elections last month. He has these thoughts on this Sunday's runoff. The elderly will often put things into perspective for you. With a small sampling of older Senegalese in the Dakar neighborhood of Medina, I conducted an informal poll about the election. He's too old, many told me about President Wad. They couldn't understand why Wad doesn't want to just retire. There's one key elder resident of Medina, though, who is especially invested in this election. Like a village chief, this man is the neighborhood chief for Medina. His name is Eliman Endur, and he is the father of superstar singer Yusu Endur. Yusu, you'll recall, wanted to run for president, but was stopped when it was found his candidacy petition didn't have enough signatures to be valid. Many suspected that President Wad engineered Yusu's disqualification. In the living room of his Medina family home, Eliman Indur points to a wall of photographs. There are pictures of Yusu and Eliman's late wife, Yusu's mother. There is also a framed order of merit from former President Abdou Diouf and a photograph of Senegal's first president, Leopold Seda Senghor. Abdullah is formidable, says Eliman Indur, invoking President Wad familiarly by his first name. But he forgot that things here need to work, he says. We need water and electricity, continues Eliman Indur. Wad's big concern is roads, he says. But we can't eat roads. That's an interesting point of view for a former car mechanic. But then again, he is Yusu Indur's father, and these are many of the same criticisms Yusu has made about President Wad. Eliman Indur is a spiritual man. He believes Allah guides all earthly interactions. And during our hour-long conversation, he seemed to imply that no matter what happens in the political realm in Senegal, Allah has it all mapped out anyway. Still, you can tell that Eliman Indur is angry that his son Yusu was taken off the ballot on a technicality. We're here and we are going to vote. We're going to vote, says Eliman Indur. You in the U.S., you will see. Yusu is not finished. He always keeps his calm, says Eliman. 
Then he pauses, and with the picture of his sheikh, his spiritual guide, staring down upon him from the wall, Eliman asks me a rhetorical question. By rejecting Yusuf's candidacy, poses Eliman Endur, will Wad, the one who rejected him, in fact lose the election? For the world, I'm Marco Werman. That's a song, Boulin Coupe by Yusu Endure. It's a song he wrote about electricity cuts in Senegal. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Have a lovely first weekend of spring. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.